Bill? Okay, this is a 76-year-old black gentleman who presented in September 2003, so almost four years ago, with shortness of breath and cough. He worked as a high school football and basketball referee. His wife is actually a former patient of mine who died of an unusual type of breast cancer. This patient was a lifetime non-smoker. He was found to have an abnormal chest x-ray, and a CAT scan of the chest showed numerous bilateral subcentimeter nodules, a 4 by 3.5 centimeter right hyalur mass with consolidation and interstitial markings in the right lower lobe that were read as compatible lymphangitic spread. A CT needle biopsy was interpreted as poorly differentiated non-small cell carcinoma. He did have some rowels at the right base, and a PET scan, which probably didn't mean too much to me at the time, but does as I review the case, showed that the area in the right lung was only mildly hot with SUVs of 2.9 and 2.7. Now you knew him from having taken care of his wife? Yes. And he also actually had a history of prostate cancer. What was he treated with for the prostate cancer? He was treated with radiation therapy. So he was treated with six courses of carboplatin and taxol completed in January of 2004. Mild improvement by x-ray and symptomatically. In March of 2004, his CAT scan showed progression with numerous lung nodules, a 3-centimeter right hyalur mass, increased consolidation in the right lower lobe. Because of my suspicion that this might be a bronchovelar carcinoma, he began ERISA in March of 2004, and within really a very short period of time, just a few weeks, he had symptomatic improvement and almost resolution of his respiratory symptoms. A CAT scan in May of 2004, just two months later, after starting, it showed improvement of the right mass, resolution of many of the lung nodules, and improvement of the right low lobe consolidation. He's now remained on ERISA for now over 40 months, despite the removal of ERISA from the market. His most recent CAT scan in June showed only a few small subcentimeter lung nodules, an area of slight scarring, and basically the radiologist and I looked at it, there's no clear evidence you can see a lung cancer. Now, as I was preparing this case, I was just thinking, I don't remember signing papers. I asked my nurses. They don't do anything. So I inquired to look into this, and basically AstraZeneca just sends him the pills every three months. There's nothing that goes on with our office where we're approving it or disapproving it. But I thought this is an amazing case. What's his state of mind? He feels normal. He still referees games, high school games. He carries on a normal life. He's entirely asymptomatic. What's it been like to take care of him? Very rewarding. I mean, it's amazing. Tom, any thoughts? So I've got a handful, not a handful, I've got probably seven, eight people like this now, and it is absolutely remarkable, absolutely remarkable. So the issue in this patient is going to be, is there a population that you quote-unquote cure with ERISA? I think the answer is probably no. I think there's probably just some patients that haven't progressed yet, but we do have this population that keeps going, including the index patient that led us to find the mutations at MGH. This woman, same time frame, started in 02 with ERISA, still has not progressed. So there are patients who have prolonged benefit in this setting. So I would definitely keep the ERISA going. Question comes up, what do you do if the person progresses? And so I would argue strongly that if your patient progresses, you obtain tissue, regardless of how hard that is, even if it means doing a small open lung or something to obtain tissue. You then assay for the T790M mutation. You look for CMET amplification and other potential mechanisms of resistance. Because there are trials now, we have three different groups of trials designed to overcome resistance in this setting. And the hope would be that we'd be able to find something that could possibly overcome resistance in a patient like this. But I find it to be incredibly gratifying to see these kinds of responses. And it's really remarkable. Would you want to see his tissue now yourself? I don't think now that that would necessarily... I don't mean practically, but from a research point of view... Well, from a research standpoint, I think I'd be very surprised if he did not have an exon 19 deletion. 
but I believe open the possibility that perhaps he doesn't, but I would bet he has an exon 19 deletion. He could have an exon 21 point mutation. We've had a couple of long-term survivors. In general, the 19 deletions seem to do better than the 21 point mutations. Much of that work actually came from Memorial Sloan Kettering that suggested that the 19s do better than the 21s. But I would think he'd probably have a solitary mutation now. And then the question is, you know, what's going to happen at the time of progression, if there is a time of progression? Tony? Evolution is continuing on the different molecular varieties of lung cancer. This patient, of course, is a non-smoker, and I have a couple patients like this. One notable one out more than five years uh, had coronary artery problems to the degree that he needed a bypass, so he underwent a thoracotomy, and rebiopsies were done with multiple biopsies of his pleura and lung where he had tumor. This is more than five years now on ERISA, a non-smoker and no tumor found. Now, again, I'm like Tom, I think he's probably gonna relapse, but this is in a remarkable group of patients, and if we don't see that this is a different group, and I'll ask Bill, what if he presented to you today, Bill, would you consider him any differently than in 2003? I think if he presented today, I would have treated him with Tarceva. I think I would manage it differently. Yeah. So see, we are. I wouldn't give him chemotherapy. I think the other key thing, and, and Neil was alluding to this earlier, is this concept of what is the psychodynamic of the patient in this setting? Because if you think about, and I have a whole group of these people, he had been through standard chemotherapy. You were starting him on second-line therapy in 2004. You had no reason to believe in 2004 that this was going to happen. I didn't. No reason. Okay, you had no reason. You thought, we'll give him something. But you and he, and I'm sure your nurses, were preparing him to probably die within three months or four months of when you started this therapy. And instead of dying, he's now blowing his whistle, calling fouls against kids in high school basketball games. So you've got this concept of being a, what one of my patients described as being a cancer surpriser, meaning, you know, this patient I took care of who was a pediatrician on staff had absolutely prepared to die. He was certain that his time had come and got this drug and it turned things around. So the psychology of that, and as he said, in the first couple of months where his body wasn't decaying anymore was just so troubling to him because he thought he had lost lost touch with himself when, in fact, he was getting better. This patient was such a tough guy, he basically never stopped what he was doing, even during chemotherapy. And he's in his 70s. He actually never stopped working. Tom, here we have a situation that you studied that we learned a lot about, but we know from having surveyed oncologists that you all have patients in your practice with all kinds of tumors who have unexpectedly great responses. People who theoretically no way should be alive free of disease who are five years later, pancreatic cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer. Do you think that maybe we ought to be specifically looking at some of these patients, trying to learn from them? So two things, I think from the scientific standpoint, that this is a group of patients where studying the genetics of their tumor, whether it be through whole genome sequencing or through looking at 30 or 40 common genetic abnormalities we know about makes great sense. That looking at why the 5% to the 2% patients do well can certainly help us. I also think think, and Neil, you've been asking a number of questions around the room about how this affects oncologists. I would argue that that group of patients is one of the major reasons that we continue to do oncology. Because if you look in face of the hundreds of patients we take care of every year who die in inexorable death that we don't really impact on, and then you look at the group of patients that we do have major impact on, I would argue it's the benefit you know, that we get personally from taking care of those cancer surprisers or those pancreatic cancer patients who live five years or the renal cell with metastatic disease who goes on for 14 years is it keeps you going in this profession. Tony, any final comment? 
I think the longer you've been a football coach, it's likely you've won more games. And you mentioned these cancer surprises, or Tom did. I mean, I've been seeing patients for over 30 years, and my clinic is full of yeah. cancer surprisers. But the denominator is huge, and I bet you Bill has the same experience. In other words, the number of patients I've seen and treated, most of them are gone. But there are a number of surprisers, and we've looked as best we can look. We don't know what to do. They don't seem any different than the ones who died. Right. We know that some, like, have oligometastasis with lung cancer. I have several of those patients alive, some of them 15 years later. I keep them coming back once a year because yeah. it, it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sometimes I'll go in one of the rooms and grab one of the younger partners and say, look at this case. Right. Let me look at this. Look at the stationery we had back yeah. 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> Interesting. Look at the stationery we had, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, off protocol, when that patient progresses on jafitinib, would you put him on ilotinib? So I've been doing that with the people who are on jafitinib, and I now have probably three left on jafitinib. But the first step is I always tried erlotinib if the person wasn't quite able to get on a study right away, if there's a gap in that time. I have not been impressed personally. I've certainly read anecdotal case reports of people who responded to jafitinib, who progressed on erlotinib and responded to erlotinib, who progressed on jafitinib. It wouldn't be my first choice, but I certainly would try it if I couldn't get them on a study right away. Tom, you mentioned getting tissue to look for these other resistance mutations. Can you do that on frozen tissue that showed the original mutation, or do you need fresh tissue? You need fresh tissue because those mutations are probably not present in the initial diagnosis. So it would require a fresh biopsy, which could either be... Now, what we're doing now... It doesn't need to be fresh tissue? It doesn't need to be fresh tissue. It can be frozen. It can be paraffin-embedded. But what we're doing now, which is really cool, and another thing, if you want to think what we're going to talk about in five years, I bet you in five years when we have this meeting, we'll be talking about circulating tumor cells. Circulating tumor cells to look for response to treatments, not just in lung cancer, pancreas cancer, prostate cancer. We'll be looking at circulating tumor cells. We now will take circulating tumor cells and look for resistance mutations in the circulating tumor cells using these cool little capture devices that they have. I bet that's something that's going to be in practice in five years. Well, it hasn't overwhelmed the breast world. The technology is exploding. The nanotechnology is exploding in what they can do. But that's just numbers that they're looking at now in breast. Yeah. Yeah. So we're actually looking at the genetic mutations in the circulating tumor cells. It's cool. 